What wants to emerge? This is the question we've been asking here at Buddhist Geeks, looking forward to the next year. And I wanted to share that a few things have come up for us as the most important response to this inquiry. I invite you to check out more about these three areas of focus for us next year and to support us if you're able at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. The three things that we're focusing on most clearly next year are one, we're reimagining the Buddhist Geeks podcast, moving to a new format and to a new season-based approach. We're also growing the Buddhist Geeks dojo, our cloud-based sangha, our training community of now 200 people who are practicing together and exploring together online. And the third thing is we're launching an entirely new training program called Meditate.io that is designed to connect the breadth of folks being introduced to meditation through things like smartphone apps to the depth of training that's possible traditionally only through wisdom traditions like Buddhism. So this is a secular program aimed at helping people move from practicing a short amount of time each day and getting the some of the initial benefits of meditation to going deeper and seeing some of the more profound results of meditation in their own lives. So if any of these projects sound interesting, you want to learn more about them. And if you're able to support this and support our work, this takes a huge amount of time, effort, financial resources to get these things off the ground in a way that honors the really deep heart behind them. And so your support is deeply appreciated and deeply needed. You can find out more again at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What's the sound of one geek giving? Find out at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. What you're describing reminds me also of the Zen koan and, and story uh, of like the fifth and sixth Zen patriarchs because there's there's this famous exchange actually that relates to what you're saying where um, uh, you know the fifth patriarch of Zen is is looking for his uh, successor right you've probably heard this story and he uh, he asks his you know uh, the, the monastery to, to express their realization in a in like a poem. And whoever has the deepest realization will become the sixth patriarch. And it's sort of assumed that his main senior student's gonna going to win um, because he's the senior student. And he writes a poem that's something like, "The body is a is a is the wisdom tree. The mind is a bright mirror. Take care to wipe it all the time and allow no dust to cling." Mm-hmm. And then the and then this this uh, this no name uh, peasant uh, Huineng comes in and 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 then and writes next to this poem uh, fundamentally no wisdom tree exists nor the stand of a mirror bright since all is empty from the beginning where can the dust alight <laughs> <laughs> so so i would suggest perhaps uh, that koan could be useful for those people concerned about losing some sort of uh, attainment <laughs> maybe it maybe it'd be okay to lose it <laughs> And maybe, and maybe, maybe psilocybin, uh, you know, this is the interesting thing to me because 
uh, I'm really, fa- I mean, it's really cool to hear you describe this. And, and on a personal level, I just want to say like a big part of the reason I reached out to you is not just to hear about the research, which I, I think is really important and, you know, helps move, move this whole exploration forward in ways that nothing else can. But it's also because I, I have a personal, you know, connection with what you're describing. And I, I also, um, you know, started my own practice without any experience uh, of psychedelics. I know a lot of people who, who do start meditation practice because of having a, a psychedelic experience. Like it opens something and then they go, hey, wait, I want to, you know, explore that more. Um, but that's, I mean, so... So Vince, you, you would have been exactly the kind of guy. I would have been at one point. So I, I so I, I don't know if you want uh, feel free to discuss what your uh, experience has been in light of the fact that you had a ongoing meditation practice. Yeah, I mean, this is you know just again one point of reference in, in terms of what you're describing, and it certainly didn't happen under the the conditions of your lab. <laughs> I can tell you that. Um, but, you know, for, for me, I, I spent uh, about a decade or so practicing intensively and going on a lot of retreats and, and really um, doing my best to, to kind of understand what some of those approaches were pointing to. And, um, you know, ha- had some pretty profound shifts in, in my sort of baseline understanding of who and what I am and what this is, what consciousness is and what mind is and all that, um, just like everyone does who really goes into that uh, in, in a sincere way. I think. And at a certain point, I, because this entire time I was extremely opposed to any sort of mind altering substances. Uh, I was like a, a straight edge meditator, as I put it now. And um, I thought, you know, very much so that those kinds of substances would somehow distort uh, whatever state of consciousness I had ex- discovered. And um, I started actually as 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 my meditative experience deepened, I actually started to really question that, which is why I brought up that Zen koan um, and started to get curious because so many people I talked to uh, had had psychedelic experiences and it, and it got them into meditation. And I thought I have no way to even um, relate to these people. Um, and a lot of the, some of them were my students because I just started teaching. And so it seemed kind of arrogant and presumptuous for me to say, you know, that meditation was somehow superior to these other experiences. So I, I decided to, you know, to, to start exploring and trying some of this stuff. And my first experience with psychedelics was, I think, in 2012. And I um, did, did a series of psilocybin doses uh, with some close friends and fellow practitioners. And... Um, you know, during that those three or four doses, uh, learned a tremendous amount about my mind. That um, I had some of it learned from meditation, and some of it was felt new. And so, you know, for me, it was um, it was it was complementary in the sense that uh, I saw one that other kinds of uh, profound altered state experiences. Um, could reveal something quite similar. And so that it, it kind of took the meditation practice off the pedestal in a way for me. Uh, and it really humbled me. And it also showed me that I, actually, this was the most profound insight. It actually showed me that I had been using my meditation to try and cope with a certain amount of 
the uncertainty of my reality. Because the last psilocybin dose that I did, I had a profound and, and profoundly un- dis- uncomfortable ego death experience. <laughs> and I, it, while, I, while my ego was sort of imploding on itself, I was trying to note the experience and to, and to notice it. And it didn't work at all. And it totally failed at protecting me from the implosion of the experience. And uh, in retrospect, I actually saw how I was using the meditation in a very subtle way to try to cope and deal with the the impermanent, uncertain nature of consciousness Mm. and how that psilocybin experience had actually ripped that capacity away from me. Yeah. And and kind of revealed to me that the subtle way that I was holding on um, uh, to meditation as a tool to to kind of somehow deal with reality. Mm. Interesting. And did that change your practice? Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, I, it loosened up my relationship to meditation in a way that I I don't know what else could in that particular way. Yeah, so that's interesting. And so one of the things that people are endorsing in our study is more flexibility, you know, with respect to their practice. And that's what you, I think you're describing, loosening you up yeah. to a way of holding it. Oh, well, that's, yeah, that's very interesting. And thank you for, uh, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, no, my pleasure. It's uh, something I've been, you know, wanting to share uh, in this context, but it's also, you know, it feels like, I mean, to go back to what you're saying in the very beginning, you know, and why I appreciate the research you're doing so much is a a lot of the reasons I had never tried it before were not just my kind of contemplative arrogance, (laughs) uh, which just sounds like it should be an oxymoron, but also um, I think it was also cultural fears and propaganda uh, in a way that like once I started researching this stuff and kind of reading the material that was out there, I realized how much like kind of cultural baggage is associated with these things that 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 doesn't really stand up you know to what what's actually known um you know like lsd i'm gonna have these flashbacks and just be like you know jumping off buildings or something you know and that wasn't you know that wasn't my experience at all yeah let's see well let me comment on on that there there are real risks involved with these compounds and of course we're working in a in a controlled medical setting where, you know, we know exactly what we're giving, we're providing optimal uh, support. But, you know, there probably are people that have vulnerabilities, as there are people that have vulnerabilities to intensive meditation practice. Right. You know, that, um, you know, would be better off not exploring these kinds of substances and you wouldn't want and some of those people for instance you wouldn't want them to go on a Goenka retreat because you know there's going to be uh there's going to be consequences to that yeah very good point (laughs) yeah so so i yeah i i guess i i want to make sure that um we yeah we understand that these compounds really are deserve uh deep respect and they can be they can be potentially dangerous and harmful. People can engage in dangerous behavior acutely, mostly in reaction to acute panic or or really distorted. I mean, and in fact, people do end up sometimes jumping off of cliffs and 
jumping out of windows or running into traffic. And, and so those kinds of things can occur. And there are some people who have some enduring psychiatric problems. Um, and, and at least in our context, we screen people very carefully. You know, we don't, we'll rule out people if they have uh, genetic family histories of psychotic illness. Uh, and, um, and so I, we think those risks are, are, are manageable, but the, uh, yeah, but anyone signing into a study of, of this sort needs to be apprised of what those real downside risks are. You know, nonetheless, like you say, and I think what our study is going to end up showing is that there, there is this curious synergy. We don't understand it. It's, it's interesting to me that, uh, that there, I don't think there are any uh, deeply established meditative traditions uh, that, that currently use substances to facilitate practice. Uh, and so that the depth of the prohibition, uh, you know, runs deep, you know, particularly within Buddhism. Yes, that's, um, that's true. And, um, you know, there, there may be, I, I wouldn't rule out the possibility that there's some wisdom in that, but my suspicion is that, uh, uh, that prudent use of these substances may, you know, actually facilitate in, in ways that we don't understand, you know, some, and deepen some kinds of practices. One other thing I, I guess I really want to kind of underscore is that with our long-term meditators, even if they, when they say that they think they're, you know, sitting practices or non-sitting awareness practices have been facilitated or improved, um, none of them would in any sense think that psilocybin or any other substance represented any kind of substitute for meditation. And most people, I think, end up valuing their meditation practice at least as much, if not more, after these experiences because it's meditation that leads to the stability of these kinds of awareness openings. And that, and that simply doesn't happen acutely with psilocybin. And, you know, and, and that's for that reason, I think recreational use and use among people without any kind of contemplative experience can be, you know, misleading and, uh, and can lead people astray with respect to uh, the, the value of coming into presence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that, that makes good sense. And um, just sort of reflecting on, on my own experience and how, you know, I think uh, I, 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 I couldn't really see it being as valuable without having spent so much time meditating because I did feel, you know, even even know, knowing my mind to a pretty high degree, you know, a feeling that I had, um, you know, uh, it felt like even, even that going into this kind of experience was almost not totally sufficient because of, because of how powerful the, the experience 
experiences can be, like you said, especially if the doses are high. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, So we think that meditators are really advantaged with respect to being able to make use of the psilocybin experience because, um, because they have this you know, long history of, of, of watching their mind, de-identifying with what it is that comes up, mm-hmm. pulling into, uh, into witness. And that's precisely what we spend our time preparing people for that don't have contemplative uh, experiences, to, to recognize that um, you, whatever emerges, be it a demonic uh, image, you know, or the fear that they're dying or that they're going insane. Mm-hmm. That's just an object of consciousness, and uh, and they can and they and and we're providing kind of optimized support and preparation. People are for these experiences. They're laying on a couch. Uh, they have eye shades on and headphones uh, through which they that we have uh, music that can be played. But they're really directing their attention uh, inward in a, you know, in a profoundly uh, inner-directed, uh, contemplative uh, manner, and um, uh, and and as, as as long as they don't reify, ex, you know, experiences of consciousness as something that is potentially of of danger to them, then uh, these uh, we we can decrease the probability enormously of panic and fear reactions. But having having the the two monitors present that you know who are there, they're trained, they're ready to ground people in consensual reality, remind them that they have taken psilocybin, they're going to be back to a normal state of consciousness in a few hours and whatever it is that's useful <laughs> oh it's it's it can be very useful at, uh, at a high dose um and so whatever it is that's appearing be it this demon sense of dying sense of going insane uh that the encouragement is always to be curious about it it takes courage and curiosity and interest to investigate what it is that's coming up, uh, and um, and the problems become, you know, and this is no different than, I think, uh, the instructions for a retreat experience. You know, the problem comes if you try to avoid it or fight it, uh, run from it, right? Resist it. Yeah, right. It doesn't. And psilocybin does the same thing as long-term retreat uh, in that respect. You know, I, I should share with you that um, just a couple of weeks ago, I, I did a week-long retreat with Tara Brock uh, and Jonathan Faust. And uh, in the middle of the retreat, uh, oh, and I, just to back up further, the, the term psychedelic means mind manifesting. And, of course, it's applied to these substances. And in the middle of the retreat... Uh, it was, I was in the middle of a session, and I opened my eyes in the hall, and you know there was a, you know, just a, a, a sense, a that deep sense of abiding uh, presence, um, 
And when I closed my eyes, there was the stillness and the vastness of what I sometimes call the landscape of mind. It, you know, there's, there's just an exquisite beauty to that. And, I, and what came to me is, you know, the original psychedelic is, you know, the long-term meditation retreat. You know, that's where mind is, you know, manifest. And, uh, and, and again, that's this synergy between these two. So I think meditation has a, a long head start on, on, the, uh, on the psychedelics, or at least the contemporary rediscovery of the use of these psychedelics. No, that's, such a, that's such a cool point and uh, it resonates so much with my experience as well. Um, and, and in a way, I think, I think part, of, you know, part of the implications of that for me, Roland, are on the Buddhist side are to actually kind of acknowledge uh, how meditation is. Uh, I mean, okay, drug has connotations that are interesting and may not apply to some aspects of meditation, but it is a, it is a powerful substance. It's a powerful tool or technology or drug that does like profoundly alter consciousness. I mean, and maybe aside from tea, I think that's like the number one Buddhist drug of choice is meditation. Yeah. Um, and, 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 I, and I wonder, you know, and I wonder like, uh, you know, in your study with, a, with addiction, for instance, this would be like a whole nother conversation probably. But, you know, um, I certainly found that I had some parts of my relationship with meditation were problematic be- because of that. Um, because I thought that it wasn't because I thought that it was somehow above that. And I know it's different from, you know, uh, ingesting something, you know, swallowing something. Um, but at the same time, it, I mean, like you say, a long-term meditation retreat, you know, it's like for many people, like going on a month or two month retreat or longer, it's like you come out and you're, you know, it's like you've been on a, a two month, uh, psychedelic journey, you know, it's like that. Yeah. 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 Um, so I, I don't know if you had any thoughts on that, but, um. That, that was something that, that kind of, you know, maybe it's more of a consideration for, you know, medium to long-term practitioners. You know, it's maybe more of a type of thing of like having to let go of the attachment to meditative states. Um, you know, again, going back to that idea. But, uh, but that, that to me, like having another experience from another substance, uh, ironically, can highlight the attachment that I have to another 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 doorway you know another as they say in zen another dharma gate yeah oh that's i think i need to contemplate that uh you know my bias (laughs) of course and i'm guessing most of your listeners would be that there's uh you know that there's something about the long the longer term practices that just leads to just greater stability of of mind and there's great benefit in accumulating that experience. But I, I suppose you could say the same for a psilocybin session or two. I mean, I, I, I would be, yeah, concerned about someone, you know, wanting to weave that uh, with any kind of frequency into, into their practice. And then, and then the issues of attachment and stability, you know, would you know, would be of relevance. But, you know, 
I'm now talking about things that I simply don't understand, you know, and and that's what makes this work so exciting. I think there's a, a, a whole lot of work to be done in terms of understanding the potential interaction and the potential synergy uh, between substances and, you know, in our awareness practices. Right, right. Like the frequency and uh, dosage and all of those things being being probably factors in that, I imagine, right? Absolutely. And, and, set, and set and setting. I had one last question for you, one last uh, thing I've contemplated often and I wanted to run by someone like yourself. Um, maybe we can wrap up there. Um, so, you know, in doing in doing the reading um, on things like LSD and um, and kind of seeing uh, suggestions, you know, like, hey, I'm not suggesting you do this, but if you do do this, you know, keep this in mind. Those kinds of things. Uh, what I ran across was uh, and, and what you described and how you all uh, conduct the sessions at your lab is very much a sense of um, going inward, of, you know, putting like uh, something over your eyes often, like an eye mask, uh, listening to music, and having it be very much of an inward uh, journey. Um, And I was curious because uh, while I've done that, uh, and that's certainly the the long-term meditation experience, retreat experience, right, uh, as well, uh, I've gotten really interested in the last several years in, in social forms of meditation where you're actually meditating with others out loud or where even where a conversation can be seen and practiced as a kind of meditation. And in the same way with psychedelics, I uh, often uh, did them uh, socially with other people in a meditative way, you know, where we were sort of describing our experience with each other, checking in, asking each other questions, inquiring, um, not just like hanging out and talking, but actually treating it as a kind of medit- as an interpersonal meditation. And I was curious uh, if that's on your radar as like another kind of variable that can be tweaked. If that's something you've considered, if if there's a reason in particular that you like the sort of inwards solo kind of uh, exploration better, it's easier to control for. Uh, just curious if you had any thoughts on that because that's something I've, I've I've wondered a lot about. Yeah, well, let's see. I have, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about it. So, um, so the doses of psilocybin we're using would actually not be compatible <laughs> with uh, uh, with social investigation of phenomena. And, and at the at the high doses that we use, um, you know, discursive language falls apart, and uh, and and it becomes uh, a confusing impediment actually to for most for many people to even try to put their experiences into words so we actually encourage people not to do so now that doesn't mean that if you don't back the dose down you know into lower dose ranges and and use the opportunity to uh, to interact with people in a mindful way that, that there wouldn't be value in that. There very well may be. In, in, you know, in, in any retreat center, if you're living in residence there, you know, presumably that's what you're, you're trying to do. So I, I, I don't doubt that there might be a role for lower dose uh, experiences of that sort. You know, the other, 
the other piece of this is that you know we do give these high doses under these conditions where we're putting eye masks on people and asking them to direct their attention inward. Many people have used these substances in nature with eyes open. Um, and those those are profoundly different experiences. In the in the classic literature of mysticism, uh, there's a di- uh, differentiation between extrovertive mystical experiences and introvertive mystical experiences. And and we have been exploring solely the introvertive type because the extrovertive uh, is much much more difficult to control uh, reliably so we haven't even touched on that but you know when you when you're doing walking meditation and you're and you're really fully present with that these same many of these same kinds of phenomena arise you know as they could do very likely with uh, psychedelics probably at lower doses than we than we use uh, when people are interacting in the world. Okay, I- interesting. You go, going back to what you're saying about the high doses and, and the sort of discursive language falling away, that, that makes total sense to me. And I, I guess I would just say in these social experiments, you know, that, that close friends and I have conducted, you know, I would agree with that, you know, that, uh, that there's a period like in the, especially in the middle where that, happens and it is you're not really talking <laughs> maybe there's like some non-verbal communication or maybe there's just a sense of sitting together in presence um but it's still sitting together uh, as opposed to be being alone and i guess that that those always for me had different qualities and characteristics that were um felt like they revealed some things about the social nature of consciousness and not just about consciousness but about this you know the networked nature of consciousness, you know, if you will, um, well, and that were very interesting. Yeah, and that's the sangam, right? And, yeah, sure. And in fact, um, you know, our two monitors being present, right? Fully alert and attentive and present provide um, some of that same context, although clearly they're not on right. substance. <laughs> they're there and. It's very often our volunteers will report, uh, you know, very strong connections with with our our monitors, um, and and they're they're feeling that presence. And we we <laughs> I don't know how to go about uh, you know quantifying that and what role that plays in the experience. But you know, many of us have experiences of meditating in groups and and feeling uh, some sense of support and how and where and why that comes about is certainly a big mystery to me. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, and, and clearly, I mean, you guys are just pushing forward on the, the early frontiers of this stuff. And it's just something, you know, uh, it's just something I've noticed in the meditation uh, with talking with meditation researchers and, and now talking with you and with some other psychedelic researchers is it's it's so interesting how the and this is this is a comment coming from an, a non-scientist obviously but it's so interesting from the outside how it appears that the scientific method really has to kind of uh, kind of isolate 
you know, the individual experience and seeing those out social variables as things that are hard to control for, or uh, potentially even as things that kind of obfuscate the experience. Whereas to me, on a personal level, those are like the most interesting aspects of of my experience or the, you know, what happens when, you know, uh, when I'm connected to another person and we're sharing an experience or uh, something like that. So anyway, just th- thank you for sharing all of that. And um, um, I'm cu- curious if you could, if there's anything else you want to say, and also if, the, if there's more specific detail you could share with folks who might be interested in, um, you know, say there's the the multi-decade practitioners out there who've never uh, had experience and might be interested in the study, if you could, uh, if there's any other details you want to share there. Yeah, I, yeah, I would love to. Um, uh, let me just start by uh, giving the a study website, which provides a, a lot of this information. And the study website is hopkinsmeditation.com. Hopkinsmeditation.com. And, uh, and if you uh, go to that website, you'll find a description of the study, some background information on Buddhism and psychedelics, some some quotes from Jack Cornfield and Tara Brock, among others, uh, who are among Dharma teachers or who have been supportive of this work. And then there are study eligibility uh, criteria. So uh, in, in terms of whether any of your podcast listeners you know, are interested, we certainly were wide open, we're recruiting, we're eager to bring uh, new people into the study. We accept people between the ages of 25 and 80. There cannot be a family history of uh, psychotic disorder uh, and no recent history of alcoholism or drug abuse. Um, People need to have a long-term meditation practice, and we're strongly biased toward uh, uh, Buddhist uh, traditions because we're the meditations we're doing are our breath, loving kindness, and uh, open awareness practice. And then, uh, as I mentioned, little or no history of exposure to these compounds, ideally none. And if there is any use, ideally it should precede any uh, initiation of meditation practice. The study involves a couple of uh, study visits to uh, Baltimore, and uh, and there can be two or three day long sessions, and before that, there's at least a a two day uh, screening procedure and one follow up uh, uh, visit to Baltimore. Um, we uh, a number, although we had initially conceived of the study to recruit people only locally, uh, we're open to national recruitment and in fact um, have had people uh, come from across the country into the study. We have a very limited travel budget so people really need to be willing to uh, uh, provide support for their transportation or lodging and we could explore that with them if they apply and and they're interested. But I guess I guess what I would like to say is that you know it's really a it's really a unique opportunity. I mean these the conditions under which we're administering 
psilocybin are optimized to support the experiences and um, uh, and most people have, as I said, have found it a value and it would be, uh, I think it would, I think all of our participants have found it personally interesting and above and beyond that, what we're doing here is moving forward with the understanding of contemplative science and I think there's something you know, fundamentally important uh, in doing so. And so we, we actually, I come to think of any participant as a study team member because they're giving uh, to their study the, their time and their interest and their engagement. And we, we are deeply respectful and appreciative of that and sense of mutual gratitude and participation of this and uh, and one will get the sense of that uh, if you if you meet or interact with any of our study team members because uh, we're, we're in this I think for the right reasons and so yeah we'd be eager to hear from people After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.